Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, you are listening to a Rattledge and Broadcasting premiere podcast. Damn you, Hollywood. And here's your host, the carnival geek himself, Robert Winfrey. Yay! Uh, I resent that. <laughs> you also are frozen, FYI. Already? God. Hang on. <laughs> well, Robert figures Let out his camera that. troubles. Uh, tonight, I, I will camera. vamp for you. Uh, tonight, we are talking okay. about Nightmare Alley. This was yet another uh, picture that came over in the Fox deal. It was released under their boutique, uh, dis- the boutique pr- production company, Searchlight. Um, it was originally... Uh, it held its world premiere at the Alice Tully Hall in New York on December 1st, 2021. And then it was accompanied by multiple screenings at the Academy Museum of Motion Pictures in L.A. and the Telluride Film Festival Bell Lightbox in Toronto. The film was theatrically released December 17th after having been rescheduled from its original release date of December 3rd. It was directed by Guillermo del Toro, uh, who we like on this network. And so that's part of the reason why we're doing this tonight. Um, we tend to just... F- follow him and see what he's doing and he's usually doing interesting things that we can talk about that don't make me and robert want to uh for various reasons and different reasons bang our heads into the wall it's based on the book um nightmare alley by william lindsey gresham it is in many ways a remake of the 1947 film it stars bradley cooper Kate Blanchett, Tony Collette, William Defoe, Richard Jenkins, Rooney Mara, Ron Perlman, Mary Steenburgen, and David Strahan. All right, Robert. There you are. Yeah, I, that tends to sort itself out when I plug it back in, but it it might kick me out on occasion. I don't know why this happens. Uh, I Frequently, it, uh, the notification I get is like, hey, make sure nothing else has access to your web camera. So I give, I cut access to everything else to the webcam, and then it still freezes on occasion because who knows why. Eh. Hey, listen, it's better than – I I don't want to spend too long on this. Um, in fact, if I ever went back to edit this, I'd cut this what I'm about to say out, but I'm going to address it anyway. I go, I look back at like our you know the years that we were on Blog Talk Radio – <laughs> and and I look at the numbers for some of that stuff, and some of it's okay, and some of it's not great. And, I, and it makes me wonder, like, we covered a lot of things that are popular. I wonder why people don't listen. And, I, and I've and i come to the conclusion it's because they've heard other stuff we've released, and the sound was so garbage, they just assume now everything I put up from that era is terrible. Um, and it's not like a terrible discussion. It's just inaudible. I think Robert Cooper said his current girlfriend has tried to listen to some of the old Metal Hammer of Dooms from, like, 2013, 2014. And they are unlistenable because the audio quality is so bad. So at least yeah. we're better off than we were five years ago, is my point, even with frozen cameras. Yeah, that's that's very true. So you went over the history of the uh, pretty good there, so I'm not going to delve too deep into that. You're correct. Del Toro is a director that I'm happy to see anything his name is attached to. He makes interesting films. They're not always great, but they're at least interesting. You know, he doesn't make generic schlock. Yeah, um, we Sean and I reviewed Pan's Labyrinth from a few years back. Which and is still one of the most... That's an amazing film. It is an amazing looking film. It's pretty fantastic. Uh, Gil, Gil, Guillermo del Toro, one of the, uh, one of the most heartbreaking uh, misses that we've had, one of the things we were not able to get is Guillermo del Toro's take on The Hobbit. 
Uh, he had a completely yeah, that, different vision for what that was supposed to be before that he is, dropped out of the project. I would love to see what his vision of that was. Like, yeah. I would love to slide over to the alternate reality where that got made. Sure. We where also... Where, where, where we get Brian Singer's third X-Men movie and not his Superman movie. There's a whole, there's a whole alternate universe where better decisions could have been made. Uh, there's nothing good about... I shouldn't say nothing. There's very little good about Brian Singer's work, but that's a different discussion. It certainly is, Ollie. I'll actually be revisiting those with my son. I told him we have to watch all 10 of the X-Men movies before we see why, Doctor Strange. Why do you do this to that poor child? He's Because he's seven. He's the perfect age for a Marvel fan. And you're going to make him watch X3 and Dark Phoenix? We are father and son, and we enjoy spending time together. <laughs> well, look, I'm, I'm not... This is not me zinging you about wanting to watch movies with your son. It's not even me zinging you about you wanting to introduce your son to X-Men movies. There's a lot of shit there. <laughs> there, there, there is. And we will wade through it all, and I trust him to come up with his own conclusions. Anyway, back to uh, Guillermo del Toro. Yeah, so uh, he's got a Pinocchio movie coming out on Netflix, and I am like, it was delayed a whole I'm, year. I am dying yeah, to see that. I'm, I'm really interested in that too. Mm -hmm. so, so, the other thing I wish we could get from del Toro, and mm -hmm. we're never gonna get it, and it's a crying shame. But for a long time, and I think. He would still do this movie, I think, if offered the opportunity, but mm -hmm. uh, he wanted to do an adaptation of At the Mountains of Madness, which is a very famous novella from H.P. Lovecraft. Okay. And it James sounds like he would kick he would kick that butt like he, it would be amazing. No one doubts how awesome that would be conceptually. Mm -hmm. James Cameron was on board, like wanting to produce it for a while, but he they actually had Tom Cruise, I think, at one point loosely attached to lead. The problem is, and this is a general problem with a lot of Del Toro movies, he does a lot of practical stuff. Mm -hmm. And that can and that can do things to the budget. He wanted a budget for this thing of north of a hundred million. It was uh, might have been right around two. Mm -hmm. And you're just really gonna struggle to sell to studio executives. A two hundred million dollar R rated horror movie, even with Ma Tom Cruise in the lead, being directed by Guillermo del Toro, that's just a hard sell. Okay, so from the beginning of the talkies till twenty nineteen, you are a hundred and ten percent correct. Post twenty nineteen, in the era of streaming and COVID, I actually think it's an easier sell now. I, I'm wondering if someone will revisit this idea, and including giving him do. the budget, because think think about this. You know, HBO Max gives him. A hundred million dollar budget and says we're going to run this as a limited theatrical thing so that it can be uh, uh it can win awards but this is basically going to be an hbo max exclusive post you know limited run and people subscribe this this would draw people i think to that streaming service i think this, yeah. this is one of those things where it's like if you can only find it on hbo max people would look for it um yeah i think a you know, amazon might be willing to foot a lot of that like sure you could easily do that. Like there's, it's not that there's not options, but right. he tried to get that going at a time when that was a really hard sell. And I think it's to be clear, you're right that it's easier now, but I still think it's a hard sell, especially with how many large scale sure thing releases this year we've seen fall flat on their face for a variety I of reasons. Just want to remind you that Red Notice got made and greenlit for sequels. It did. And Netflix is weird <laughs> like that. Don't get me wrong. But so, again, just again 
Well, look, the the sell on Netflix is watch The Rock and Gal Gadot and what's his face, um, Reynolds. Ryan Reynolds. Like, hey, three of the more bankable, visible stars that we have, watch them you're, together. You're you're running away from the obvious point, which is that you have a handful of distributors out there now with a seemingly endless array of cash to yeah. throw at prestige projects. Yeah, again, I think it's easier. I think you're correct in that respect. It, mm -hmm. It's still hard. Like, that's not an easy sell. Well, the transition from that to, to this... this. <laughs> is this got made mm -hmm. for and i don't want to skip ahead to the money but no, no, it, it, got, can... it, it got made for 60 million it is made like a small fraction of that we'll talk yeah. about it at length in a you little know, bit I, I do want i mean like it, this is one of those i i'm gonna bring this up now and we'll revisit it when we talk about the money i have been and this is more of me thinking out loud and then we'll come back to it i have said both privately to you um and to, to a degree publicly I wonder how much money Disney has lost on the Fox deal. Now, I understand. I am not saying the Fox deal is some sort of albatross or anchor weighing that company down. It'll be fine. They'll no, it, be fine. It, it was it was a short term loss for a long term right. gain. But, well, they went into that had to have been 2018, 2019 when the Fox deal was announced, and then it took a year to get final. Well, it, it was older than that, I think, because they because mm -hmm. Dark Phoenix had to be released by after Disney had bought them. I'm trying I forget, to what year, year this I forget was. what year that was. Point being, you know, it, it is still, it's still relatively new, all things considered. Right. So my well, my point is, they bought it. They bought it pre-COVID, and yeah. I and I'm sure they thought, okay, well, some of these will surely be winners. And, and so if, many of them weren't even before COVID. <laughs> right. Like hey! that's my point. So many of these films that they that they inherited that were in various stages of production or near near to be released, and you know almost to a letter none of them have been like profitable it's yeah, like dark phoenix flopped i mean new mutants they you know what if i were to put on my conspiracy theorist hat and be ridiculous and potentially get us uh, in trouble on youtube good start the covid situation did give them a viable out for why new mutants was so bad like did so poorly okay well, so, yeah. I, here, here's what here's what I think you just pointed out without even realizing you were doing it. I'm wondering how much of Disney looked at the Fox movies and were like, you know, by contract we have to release these, so we'll just release them. Yeah. But we don't care if we take a bath on them. We don't I mean let. And again, transitioning into Nightmare Alley here. Think about this: they had this set for December third. What was December third's big uh, competition? Woof. Okay, Woof, which I reviewed with Whitney Seibold as kind of a joke. Um, <laughs> So there was nothing, okay? There was there was West Side Story and uh, I think one of the football movies, December 10th. It had a good two... It would have had a good two-week run I, before the whole theater marketplace got ate up by Spider-Man. I, I don't know... They changed it and went head-to-head -head with their own property. There's no way, and this is my point, that to me this feels like Wall Street... Why are you wrecking this company? Because it's wreckable. Why are you releasing these movies like The Last Duel and Nightmare Alley in places where they're never going to make any money? Because we can, and we'd rather take the loss than try to market these and potentially release them in competitive places and still lose. Because, oh, by the way, there's also an ongoing pandemic. Yeah, uh, very, very possible. Yeah, I... 
I do want to say about this one, you know, a $60 million budget for this kind of movie is not really out of bounds. I mean, no, it's, I think it's higher end, but it's not like it's not hundred plus million dollars for the last duel like that. Yeah, well, that's a whole other. <laughs> so I, I mentioned that to a coworker of mine today. Like if your choices are in the same group, you can only see one movie a month. And in the same month, you've got Venom, Halloween, um, Dune, and a, in a movie about a rape, which one are you going to say? And he's like Halloween. Because he's a big horror nut, um, you know. There's no, of, there is no one who answers the last duel in that scenario. That's my point. And he was like, "What's the last duel?" So, kind of wrapping this whole uh, thing up. If you're releasing this in September, you know, around the time of like *Malignant* and *Cry Macho*, you've got a fighting chance of making 100, 120 million dollars on it. And you're releasing yeah, it. Within, I, you're releasing it the same day as *Spider-Man: Avengers: Endgame*. You're you're an Spider insane person. Spider-Man into the eternal Spider-Verse infinity. <laughs> so what happens in this thing, man? Well, Nightmare Alley primarily follows uh, Bradley Cooper's character of Stanton Carlisle. goes by Stan. We are introduced to him burning a body in a farmhouse. Like you do. I mean, who hasn't? After which he boards a bus and wanders around for a little bit. We're set in the early 1940s here. Mm -hmm. He uh, bumps in. He winds up at a carnival, just at one of the bus stops, where he picks up some work as hired as a labor, uh, like taking down tents and whatnot at first. And just through kind of happenstance, he sticks around. He becomes part of the carnival. He does some barking and selling for uh, uh, one of the psychic acts. He does again, any kind of manual labor that needs. He helps out with the guy who runs the freak show. He essentially becomes a producer. <laughs> Pretty much. And then, and then, like every producer whose deep-seated goal it is to be successful on camera, you hacks. <laughs> uh, he, he and the, um, the, this is a fairly um, stationary, this is a uh, stationary carnival, not a traveling one. At this point, uh, they the traveling one hooks up with a stable location carnival and uh, the psychic act and the, her husband, who's the magician. They kind of take a liking to him and he starts learning some of the tricks of their trade, uh, specifically reading mentalism, uh, you know, stuff like that, rather than a lot of the more traditional magic acts. Uh, as he's there, our. This bothered me just a little bit in the movie, and for one reason and one reason only. As soon as this scene happened, I knew exactly. I had not read the book. This is based on I have not seen the original movie. But you don't put this particular Chekhov's gun on the table if you're not going to fire it. Mm -hmm. When the, uh, the carnival geek, who is a person who bites the heads off of live chickens, uh... Cooper watches this his first uh, Stanton. He watches this his first day in the carnival, uh, when he's just there as a paying customer, basically. And he's a little bit fascinated by this. So after the geek falls ill because he is poorly kept, not maintained, like they keep him in a cage, he's unstable. Uh, and and you he, think mental health uh, care is poor now? Really? <laughs> uh, he and uh, Willem Dafoe take him to a clinic and leave him on the doorstep like so many unwanted children and they're getting 
dinner or something after the fact, and Bradley Cooper asks him, so where do you find carnival geeks? And he tells him, you don't find them. You have to make them. These are not naturally occurring phenomena, despite what every salesman of this kind of like him will tell you. Mm -hmm. So he runs through the process. You find someone really down on their luck. Some veteran of the first world war suffering from PTSD, some alcoholic, somebody with schizophrenia, someone who, again, whether they already have some kind of mental health issue or not, you find someone who is really, really down on their luck and you offer them a job temporarily. You know, we'll find a real geek eventually, but until we do, you know, it's a gag. We'll give you a razor blade to help you do it. So you don't have to actually bite it. And you kind of lure him in with this and you give him booze laced with opium and you keep this up for a bit until a certain point when you tell him we no longer need your services and then the last night out you really dry out the show and you let this poor sap whose mind is already fractured and if it wasn't before it certainly is now with the opium addiction you let him think about what what's going to happen if you kick him out of this job and all the pain and suffering that goes into detoxing like that, especially back then. I mean, yeah. it's, no, it's no picnic now, even, much less. I think I've said this before. The two thing, the three things that we will treat for detox of the array of drugs out there um, are op opiate detox, benzodiazepine detox, and alcohol detox. Because those three will kill you. Yeah. yeah. You know what won't kill you? Meth detox, cocaine detox. And oh, they're, uh, various other drugs. But they're very, very messy. Yes, they are. Uh, anyway, you you make him think about this. And in order to stave off this horror, the, this broken person will then literally bite the head off a chicken. Right. And at that point, you just... They're gone. So yeah. you can keep them. You keep, you know, doping them. And their brain fractures, their psyche goes away. Their personality collapses. And you get to use them in this way as long as you see fit. And if any of the cops ask questions, you do a good job of hiding it. Sure. Because, you know, we are morally bankrupt people. Uh, as soon as this scene happens, you know where this story's going. <laughs> if you have any degree of foresight whatsoever. And that doesn't make it uninteresting. Let me, let me sure. be clear about that. It just... Because the journey is interesting in and of itself in this movie. And I, that deserves a lot of credit. But it does remove some of the mystery about the ending. And that's a minor quibble on my part. Because, you know, everything that goes into film is there for a purpose. Unless you're a hack like J.J. Abrams or Michael Bay or a few others who just throw crap on screen and see what happens. But yell about them later. Well, so well, he we'll, is... talk, we'll talk about it tomorrow. <laughs> I haven't seen that movie yet. I'm seeing it tomorrow. So okay. I've just I, will seen it I, I will trust your assessment. Uh, we... So he is told how the, about this process, and it's horrifying, but Bradley Cooper is a bit of a sociopath himself. So, well, his character, not him. I don't know him as a person. Uh, so he takes up kind of the task of mentalism. He likes learning this, figures out, the, figures out the legitimate side of it, which is reading people, profiling them, making educated guesses, and the pure con artistry that goes into how you manipulate the information you're able to gain, working verbal cues and tricks with a partner to describe images you can't see based on what they tell you, stuff along that line. He kind of falls for Rooney Mara's character of Molly, who's 
Uh, she has part of an act where she just gets shocked, basically. Um, and you just, to kind of be shocking, to be shocking, pardon the pun. They're accosted by some cops who want to run them out of town, but a nice little bit of uh, faux psychic readings from Bradley Cooper convinces the uh, sheriff in question that they shouldn't really be messed with. He eventually convinces, the long and the short of this is he accidentally, and I'm going to put that in air quotes because they never sh say whether it's deliberate on his part or not, but given some of his issues, it might be. Mm -hmm. um, the character, the magician who he's learning from is an alcoholic. And he often, he, you know, asks him to bring him booze on occasion. And Willem Dafoe has two cases of alcohol in differently painted wooden crates. One of them is wood alcohol, which do not consume. <laughs> the other is sugarcane alcohol, which is perfectly safe. They're in, again, they're in different colored boxes, but when he goes to get them, it's dark and he's a little bit distracted by... Uh, Willem Dafoe's character, I think he's breaking in a new geek or he's or something to that effect. There's something else going on that he is passingly interested in and might have just been distracted. So the magician's poisoned. Uh, again, terrible tragedy or act of unbelievable maliciousness. That's That one's left up to you. There's a lot of other stuff he does that is unambiguous. Uh, he convinces Molly to leave this particular carnival with him with the uh, promises that they can take this act and they can make it bigger in a uh, fancy venue. And they do. They move to Chicago. He's put. He is a uh, featured performer at one of the uh, fancier hotels there. And things are going okay, but Molly's not quite as keen on the uptake for everything that's going on here. He's a little bit disillusioned by this. And things change for him when he is introduced to two characters. Uh, one of them is a judge who's struggling with the death of his, who's still struggling with the death of his son from the First World War, and it's straining his marriage with his wife. The other is the uh, psychiatrist, played by Kate Blanchett, who is is on to his game, and he's still able to kind of uh, he, his per she kind of tries to sandbag one of his performances to see if he's legit or not at the judge's behest, because the judge wants to have some kind of psychic reading, a seance where he talks to his son and whatnot, and that's not something uh, Bradley Hooper's character has done to this point. He sticks to the, again, the, the, basis, the basics of mentalism, you know, reading people surface levels, describing objects, you know, doing things that are impressive if you don't know the tricks, and frankly are a little bit more impressive even if you do know if you're someone like me. The intricacies of how you get to do that, that's really cool, actually. Uh, but he's been warned off of doing, they call them spook shows, which are these, again, these seances, these, I can speak to your dead relative, I can convey messages for them, all for a reasonable fee, of course. <laughs> and it's good advice not to be a phony psychic like that, because that's a, that's dangerous on a bunch of levels and is utterly, utterly contemptible on a moral level. There's certain people who did it on television and still do it on television, and I have nothing but contempt for those individuals. Uh, and so he decides to do this for the judge because it's a lot of money. He goes to talk with Kate uh, Blanchett because the judge was a client of hers, and he uses 
his kind of association with her, offering her a cut of the money to gain information he would not otherwise have access to. They have a little bit of back and forth. Um, Save that for after the fact. Uh, He does the reading for the judge and the judge's wife, and it seems to repair a little bit of of what's going on between them. Uh, The wife did not want their son to enlist. And hopefully I don't get kicked out again as I double check my camera here. (laughs) Okay. All right. Reconnect. There we go. So uh, the wife didn't want the son to enlist. The father was in support of it, and he died horribly in no man's land. So he seems to repair a little bit of that relationship. The judge then, and this is where things get really icky. (laughs) uh, Theoretically, the judge, actually, but we'll get to that, recommends him to an extraordinarily wealthy and powerful uh, businessman whose name escapes me as far as the character goes. Uh, give me a second, I'll find that. No, you keep going. I will do that. Um, Grindel, Ezra Grindel. Just a Played by Richard Jenkins. Yeah. And Grindel offers a lot of money if he's able to kind of reconnect with a, a woman he, knew, he was in love with that died. And Cooper, despite being warned repeatedly that Grindel is unstable, violent, and exceptionally dangerous decides well that just makes that just eases my conscience a little bit about milking him of cash uh he starts going through these seances he does research uh he steals some case files from uh from kate blanchett who treated grindle briefly tries to manipulate the guy out of money and there's details here we can go into later if we're so inclined uh, this winds up going badly because Grindel wants to see a manifestation of, you know, like, make make her ghost appear. Bradley Cooper comes up with an idea for how he might pull this off with the help of Molly, who's become increasingly aware that Bradley Cooper is not in love with her anymore and she wants to get out of this relationship. She agrees to, for one final time, help him. She dresses up, but this the uh, meeting between them goes awry. He realizes he's being scammed. Um, Cooper then beats him to death with his bare hands. <laughs> his bodyguard chases them down. Bradley Cooper runs him over with a car twice. If you're going to do it, you got to do it right. Uh, Molly then leaves knowing this guy is too far gone. He goes to talk with Kate uh, Blanchett to get all the money that he's been storing in her safe because he didn't want Molly to know all the things he was doing. Uh, only to find that she has been scamming him and using him to gain revenge on Grendel for some pretty awful things Grendel did to her. Grendel, by the way, confesses to being a serial abuser, if not killer, of women. And, again, completely and utterly putting Bradley Cooper in a bit of a moral right to just give that man a horrible death. And I don't say that uh, ironically, either. Like that, You're going to kill somebody in this world, you know. There are worse people to kill. <laughs> Yeah, like this is the last night in Soho discussion again. Different discussion. This is a much better movie. (laughs) Uh, So he is left with essentially none of, I mean, very little of the money. She'd replaced most of the bills and gangster roles that he'd given her with singles. She calls the police. She starts to frame him as a deranged 
uh, person who just you know assaulted her and violently murdered people. I, let me say this: if you're looking for, I don't particularly love the phrase gaslighting, especially how it's used now. It seems yeah. to be one of those straw man arguments for anytime somebody is confronted about anything, right or wrongly, mm -hmm. like you're gaslighting me. But if you'd like a textbook definition of gaslighting, if you'd like to see what that looks like, um, that scene. That scene where she where she's basically like you're an insane person and this has all been an, you know a delusion and you're regressing from you know your previously healed state and he's and like I, you and I have never met outside this room like right. she's, say, she's saying this for the recording that she's turned on she's right. recording what's going on but it's also a wonderful bit of manipulation on her part we can get yeah. we can get to the minutiae in a second i was but, gonna say it's, that is a that scene is a, obviously very well act, the whole thing's well acted but oh yeah that scene is exceptionally well acted on kate blanchett's part and if you ever want to show if, if you're ever in an argument with somebody and the person says because they, they don't want to be confronted you're gaslighting me be like listen i'm gonna need you to watch this scene because <laughs> yeah <laughs> because that's what that looks like not what i'm currently doing to you yeah, that's true. So he goes on the run from the police, uh, now broke financially and bereft of friends, family, or otherwise. Oh, we get a flashback. He he does bits of therapy with Kate Blanchett where we reveal that he murdered his father uh, before burning him and his farmhouse down and then heading out. Mm -hmm. So he's always been you know, a dark person, but he... He uh, escapes the police. He jumps into a box car. He becomes a hobo for many years. And then that hobo life, stabbing folks with this hobo knife. Sure. <laughs> I appreciate that reference. I'm sure you do. Uh, you know, telling tall tales for sponge baths like you do. <laughs> uh, he winds up seeing a uh, carnival flyer, an older one that references the, uh, the psychic that he learned from. So he inspired to try and you know, one last ditch effort to try and pick up what's right with his life you know, to make things right. He goes to a local carnival and to the guy who runs it says, you know, I was a mentalist. I know I look like crap. I'm really down on my luck, but I've got a good act. Uh, I'd like to demonstrate it for you. And the other guy says, no, I, I don't like mentalism to begin with. And then before he heads out, he offers him a drink. He then essentially does the sales pitch that uh, Willem Dafoe mentioned earlier about turning this uh, poor man into a carnival geek. And Bradley Cooper's character remembers that conversation. Then makes the conscious choice that there's nothing going on good for me. I've lost everything. I was screwed up to begin with. And when asked, you know, are you, you think you could be, a, you know, temporarily our, our geek, you know, just until we find a real one. He just says, Mr. I was born for this, uh, which is a reference to the original movie where that was kind of the catchphrase of the same character. He doesn't use it all anywhere else in this film, but uh, it's a nice little callback. And then laughs and sobs hysterically as we cut to credits. This is a very, it's not a colorful movie. So when I say the following, uh, I don't want to mislead people, but it's a very pretty movie. The, the cinematography yeah. in this is pretty gorgeous. Um, Obviously, Guillermo del Toro is going for a noir aesthetic. Mm. I think he is a, he accomplishes that in spades. Um, it's a strong cast, it's very wonderfully well acted. Not a bad, not a bad performance to be found here no. anywhere. Kate, Kate Blanchett is sharp as a knife in this. She's really, really good. Um, Bradley Cooper. I mean, Bradley Cooper. I think because people people who know that he's the voice of Rocket. 
you know, sometimes don't give him enough credit or credit to but Bradley Cooper is an exceptional the, actor. These are these are people, mostly silly Marvel fans, who have never bothered to look up what that man is capable of doing mm-hmm. in better <laughs> films. For example, Tim- I mean, look, the two big ones are obviously Silver Linings Playbook and uh, A Star is Born. Well, I was going to say, like, let's not pick too much on pick too much on the Marvel fans. Remember, he was also in the Hangover movies. So true. Most true. Earthlings have only seen him in Guardians of the Galaxy or the Hangover movies. Yeah, that's um, fair. Although I tend to think even lower of fans of the Hangover franchise than I do fans of Marvel. No argument there. But my point, <laughs> is, but my point is that. You don't know how good Bradley Cooper is yeah. if you've only seen him in those movies. So yeah. he's uh, he's exceptional in this. He, you know, sometimes an entire movie is. I mean, he goes one actor, but this one he he's 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 a giant, but he's a giant among other giants. Right he's down the, to Ron Perlman. He's the central pillar. Yeah, but he is not the only thing supporting this film. So uh, I said the cinematography is really really well. It's a very interestingly shot movie. My criticisms are thusly, um, and it's more of, it's not a criticism of the movie. Thinking back to some of the other things that we've talked about, I'm always the one arguing, don't judge a movie by your expectations, judge it by the presentation. So this is me kind of just reaching for something to talk about. You called your movie Nightmare Alley, and yes, I understand it's an adaptation of a book. It is also a remake of a movie. I'm not trying to say it should have been anything. I'm just saying... There should have been I, an alley. <laughs> there should have been a nightmare. Um, I other than the carnival geek stuff, I I thought when I when I pitched this movie for you as a review, I was like, "Hey, Guillermo del Toro, you know, noir horror, uh, nightmare alley. This sounds like something that would intri- that would interest you." And it did, but I think I was thinking more of this would be leaning on the traditional horror side. I thought yeah. there would be some graphic imagery that would be unsettling. There isn't. No, what's unsettling about this story is the material covered, not anything uh, yeah, overly. It, I mean, it's what described the, as hang on, it's described as a probably uh, as, it's what neo, like a neo noir psychological thriller is kind of right how down to the it. letter, bud. You just you nailed it, ding. I <laughs> I don't agree. I don't necessarily. I mean, like when we talk about categorization, mm-hmm. like, it, it clearly does in some respects fall into those genres. I sure. don't mean to imply that it doesn't, but that's not really what I think of this movie as. Okay. See, I'm 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 in agreement with this neo noir psychological thriller, but what I was getting to was I thought we were getting more of a traditional graphic horror movie. I thought there would be playing around with some imagery. The the horror as it is in the subtext. It's in the yeah the conditions the actors suffer. It's in the you know the falling apart of people's lives and you know and how horrible this all is. And when you think about you know. It was a very nice recitation of everything that was said, but if you boil it down to its brass tacks, this guy takes advantage of a mourning father. Yep. Like that's all horrifying. And so, mm-hmm. you know, hor- horror can be many things as we've discussed on a number of occasions. But when you think of horror, you think of Jason running around with a machete, you know, chopping up people or um, Michael Myers running around with the, with the kitchen knife and whatnot. Hor- but horror can be that. Um, I think I've mentioned this before. Like I read a short story, about the Joker and the Joker um, switches bodies essentially with the doctor and the, the, you know, and so now the doctor is wearing the Joker's face and the, the Joker is able to walk out of Arkham Asylum. Um, 
and the doctor realizes what's happened and, and what horror is now befalling him. And but by the way, the and the last thing the Joker says is, I'll go ahead and give your wife and give your wife my best. Like, oh <laughs> yikes. That's horrifying. That's really horror. Is. You know, it's not brains falling out on the floor, which I will get to next. Um, but it but it is, I would tell you that. I'm more horrified by the possibility of a guy wearing my face, banging my wife, than I am at the, you know, at, at guy being stabbed to death multiple times like a Thanksgiving turkey. See our review of Halloween Kills. Um, I will tell you on the occasion that Guillermo, Guillermo del Toro does have to film something graphic and create something kind of gross looking. Well achieved. It just doesn't happen all that often. I'm this referring is... specifically to when he runs over the bodyguard. That's an that's a pretty bad one. The fact that. Uh... Bradley Cooper literally punches the nose off of uh, mm -hmm. Ezra's face. Yeah. This is a, I, I mentioned this about Del Toro when we reviewed Crimson Peak, and it's true of pretty much everything he does, especially nowadays. He doesn't really lean on graphic violence, mm -hmm. but anytime it is appropriately called for in a story, he never shies away from it. Like, yeah. Uh, Crimson Peak has one kind of shocking moment of violence early. Then a lot of nothing until our finale. Yeah. This one has, uh, what, maybe two? Like, you, his escape from that compound is kind of it. Again, he beats a man to death and then runs over another one. Um, you know, the guy biting the head off the chicken is, to certain degrees, a little bit in that vein. But that's more mm -hmm. about, that's more about the human than the, uh, the on-screen violence. So yeah, I so this was not what I expected. Um, so that's my one little criticism there. It's probably about a half an hour too long. I think that's my biggest gripe with this. It and I I would have to go through this movie with a fine tooth comb to figure out what to cut and where, but it does feel a bit long. And Guillermo well, del Toro feels you know is is definitely shooting this in a I'm in love with the scene kind of fashion. You know those directors mm. who. It's almost a, it's almost like perverted how long they linger on a scene. Yeah, we've and, talked about Chloe Zhao's films. Uh huh. Um, and and that that's what I think. Like sometimes you have to kill your baby. Sometimes you need an editor. You know the Pat Oswalt thing of you know you got to kick the director out of the room and then you know and and have it sit then cut something that is coherent and makes sense. And while I respect an auteur's uh, decision to linger. Uh, and present film as art. Sometimes you just need to get to the point, and this movie doesn't do that well enough. Um, yeah, it's not a like failure I... of film. It's just one of those where you could have told the same exact story the same exact way, lost nothing, but cut thirty minutes. Yeah, I, again, I'd have to go through specifically to figure out where. Mm -hmm. I mean, this isn't you know not to rehash the old gag, but when I when you said, okay, what are you going to cut out of? age of extinction i stop i'm making a point <laughs> i said specifically okay you cut this five minutes this two minutes this five minutes this yeah. 10 minutes well like i i knew what i thought needed to be cut from that film to make it a more to to achieve the same goal here i'm again i'm not disagreeing with you i think it probably is overlong mm -hmm. but it, there's nothing quite as obviously removable uh, off the top of my head, at least as I think back on it. So uh, it would be a fun exercise to go through it and go, okay, we need to trim, you know, uh, somewhere between 20 and 30 minutes. 
where do we cut? How do we cut? You know, that kind of thing. I, I think it'd be an interesting exercise, but uh, like I said, nothing, nothing obviously comes to mind when I think about that. Uh, you mentioned the set design, which is wonderful. I like the color palette that uh, Del Toro uses here. Anytime they're in kind of the carnival sequences, things are things look dusty. Once they get to Chicago, things are a little bit brighter, a lot sharper. Yeah. Uh, th there's a lot of really, really smart uh, cinematography and framing in that respect. I like the, the cost office has, has, has the feel and coloring of a very cold... Yeah. It almost it feels it almost feels like Superman's um uh hall fortress of solitude. Yeah, if it, it has that fortress of solitude feel without the silliness. Yeah, uh, it it very much does. I like the costume design that went into this. They did uh, excellent work. Yeah, you, you know, making people look like they're from the '40s is not the easiest thing, especially when you're going through the differences. We start out with you know lower end guy Bradley Cooper in a carnival to high-end Bradley Cooper in you know, the high life of Chicago to Hobo. Yeah. And there's a lot of other stuff in the background that's all this, that you know, has to mesh and has to blend. And they do an exceptional job with that. So um, this thing is up for a bunch of awards and is probably yeah. going to get a bunch of Oscar nominations, which is another reason we're talking about it. One would assume. Uh, so Critics' Choice. It's nominated for Best Picture, Best Director for Guillermo del Toro, Best Cinematography, Best Costume Design, Best Production Design, Best Score, Best Hair and Makeup, which I completely agree with. I actually hope it wins. Yeah. I can't think of another uh, one where it, where, where it would. I'd, have to, I'd have to go. Um, as far as hair and makeup goes, I'd have to be real. Like, I'd have to go through some of the other nominees and, like, real fine-tooth comb that. Mm -hmm. um, not sure I agree on score, but I did. But I liked I certainly liked the music, not to set you up for that plug too early if you're not interested, but as no, a, if we're done, I can go with it. It's fine. Uh, well, not quite. So hang on. We'll get to the music again in just a second. Mm -hmm. uh, we mentioned there's not a bad acting job to be found here. Cooper's excellent. Blanchett's excellent. Even the smaller stuff. Uh, Tony Collette does a good job. Uh, the guy who plays her husband, I think it was Tom, uh, he does a really good job of you know, Ron Perlman is Ron Perlman at this point. Like <laughs> um, this was one of the better jobs I've seen out of Rooney Mara in some David time. David Russell stra straight, straight yeah. Aaron. That's what you're talking about. Yeah. He's, he's just a good working actor. He's been around for a while. He's done a lot. I mean, he was the primary antagonist in the third Jason Bourne movie. Uh, he was in uh, Nomadland. Mm -hmm. In fact, he, he broke the poor lady's dishware. <laughs> <laughs> uh so he's he doesn't ever really do a bad job but he's also not a name that you'd necessarily he's a face you'd know but he's not really a name that would stand yeah, out to nobody you. nobody will know who he is until he shows up as a marvel villain even then <laughs> yeah, look well, let's he'll probably be in some sort of kooky costume and caked on makeup and painted all the way gold and and whatever. lest we have to rehash the discussion 90 percent of marvel villains suck and after 40 films, I have done the math on that. <laughs> so that's all good. You know, I, I, I don't know that this will win Best Picture. I think that's a bit of a stretch this year, but we'll have to wait and see. The front runner is Belfast. Right? Yeah, that at the Golden Globes will be in different categories. I think because that's a musical, if memory serves. Maybe. Um, is it or is it not? I can't remember. Oh, look, you keep talking. You've reviewed it. Belfast? <laughs> yeah, didn't you? 
No, not yet. Not. I mean, you may you may have thought I did because you time traveled, um, and you know, past when we were doing that. But no, okay. I have not. It is labeled a drama comedy drama. Hmm. Okay. I I don't know. I there's a stage there's a stage performance in it, so that might be what I'm mistaking it for. So either way. Uh, yeah, Belfast is kind of the clubhouse leader at the moment, and I think that'll probably hold. Uh, mm. But this is a cert- this is certainly a worthy addition to Del Toro's excellent filmography. It's well worth your time if you're interested in the heavier material and the kind of morality play that goes into, uh, which is mostly what I think of this film as, uh, this story. It was listed as the National Board Reviews. It was the winner of the National Board Reviews t- uh, Top 10. It joins its luminary pictures as Licorice Pizza, which we will eventually get to. Belfast, which we will that, eventually get to. Licorice Pizza might be another one that uh, goes all yeah. the way to. Neck, neck and neck. Uh, Don't Look Up, which we are reviewing in uh, two, two weeks, I think. I can't believe that that's getting <laughs> buzzed like that. I really can't. Dune, which we reviewed. King Richard, which we reviewed. The yeah, Last Duel, which we reviewed. None of those uh, have a chance. The Red Rocket, which I would like to review, but I don't know anyone that wants to go see that besides me. Uh, the tragedy. You, you don't even really want to see it. You just like the idea of it. You sure do. You know me so well. Um, the tragedy of Macbeth, which we're not reviewing. I don't want to. Hey, 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 guys, guys. I hate to break this to you, but Macbeth dies. And West Side Story. Boy, um, what a look! In three more years, the hey, tra- you, know on, you know what's not on that list? Spider Man. Just, just saying. For good reason, apparently. <laughs> uh, hang on. In three years, the tragedy. Of West Side Story by Steven Spielberg, the documentary about that film, is going to sweep some Oscars for documentaries. Like the, the sad, sad story of that movie is more interesting than the sad, sad story it tries to tell. Mm. Um, all right. Anything else about this movie? If not, we'll move on to the lack of money it made. Well, again, it's up for best score, so we'll revisit the bit here. Uh, I did. I did enjoy the music. Again, I'm not sure best score, but. Uh, I haven't seen, I'll have to see the full list of nominees once award season really kicks off. Uh, but the music here is certainly very, very good. I especially love the music that goes on when Blanchett reveals that she's been manipulating Bradley Cooper the whole time into killing a man who wronged her. Mm-hmm. And he was just too stupid to see it. Yeah. Very haunting uh, music. And that's very, scene. very. So I actually also love that there's essentially no music in the final scene. It's yeah. just those two guys talking. That makes it all the more harrowing. So yeah, the music in this is quite good. So I'm not objecting to its nominations. And if you'd like to check out the music, if you're hearing this review and you're like, oh, I'm going to wait for, for it to come on TV, like most of the known universe, but you're wanting to hear the score now. Well, as it turns out, we are giving away a free 30-day trial of the Amazon Music Unlimited service uh, at getamazonmusic.com slash W2M network. So you click the link in the description of this podcast, then you go fill out the information, and then you can go and stream all the soundtracks and all uh, whatever bands, whatever genres, whatever you like, including the soundtrack to Nightmare Alley for 30 days on us. And then at the end of that 30 days, you can cancel with no fuss, no muss, or you can keep it and pay the monthly fee, which is comparable to Apple Music and Spotify. But we use Amazon Music here all the time. Um, we use it on the metal hammer of doom. It's great. We love it. And with that said, let's go ahead and talk about how there's no money to be had. Yes, indeed. 
<laughs> All right. So uh, this thing has made uh, on a. I think we talked at this point. Before, a six. It's it's a sixty million dollar budget. It's made two point eight million dollars. Uh, this is a fairly substantial loss. We said we said this before. In a year where um, Disney has lost, not just on the Fox deal, I, I, I kind of focused on that. Well, but... it, it's worth talking about as a general point that there's there's still stuff that they were obligated uh, mm-hmm. to continue. And the other thing about Nightmare Alley that might have actually swelled its budget, uh, this thing had to shut down production more than once. Mm-hmm. Um they i think the full like making of this movie and i don't just mean like the process of writing it out yeah uh, was uh, like principal photography began in january of 2020 temporarily moved to buffalo in february um and then okay principal photography was initially set to begin in september of 2019 but was delayed to accommodate bradley cooper yeah, that, that's a funny bit of like alternate casting. Originally, for this lead role, they were looking at uh, Leonardo DiCaprio was attached, and then yeah. they went with Cooper instead for reasons. And I would have been curious to see DiCaprio's take on this. In March of 2020, Del Toro himself shut down production due to rising uh, concerns about COVID 19. Um, and then Disney, everybody went to lunch and came back six months later. Disney officially halted production on the film soon after. So yeah, there, there was a lot of start and stop with this. Um, I don't know what possessed them to release this on the same day as Spider-Man. It's, it's, yeah, I, I mean, I, there's no other way to interpret that as you know they they I don't know if one of the things to fail is the right phrase I'm looking for, but I think they just highly expected it to fail no matter when they released it, given this the state of the marketplace right now. It's, you know, this is one. This is yet another one of those movies meant for an older audience, and older audiences just aren't going to the theaters. Uh, even taking COVID out of it, a lot of people, I think a lot of people are just, um, I, I, you know, so you can watch the stuff at home on your big screen, te- flat screen television. Here's, this has been a trend that, um, I don't want to say it came out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. And this, we're going to talk about this more tomorrow. So I'm not going to go into detail on this. But the theatrical experience over the last two years. And it's mm-hmm. been really fast that this happened. It's not really about movies anymore. No. It's about it's events. And not just events. It's events where a bunch of drunk people shout and scream at the movie theater. Oh, boy. Are we going to talk about that tomorrow? And, um, I have things to say. Well, let me let me jump in here. So I sent... <laughs> so after Solo bombed, um, you know, this, despite its pre-production issues and its change in directors and all of that... It also lost the audience, you know, the, the very heavily motivated, almost religious Star Wars audience and bombed spectacularly. Disney, Disney Star Wars is a catastrophic failure and has essentially burned every bit of goodwill that one of the most devoted fan bases in existence has. So the Red Letter Media guys have a character that they occasionally do. They haven't done a lot of this lately, but they will usually break out a character called Scientist Man. When the fabricated controversy about Ghostbusters 2016 was going on, they did a whole scientist man thing looking at the statistical analysis of how that was all BS. Um, They did a scientist man explains the Terminator timeline, which is hysterical, by the way. I assume that's just scientist man getting drunker and drunker and then breaking down (laughs) sobbing by the end of it. 
it's <laughs> close. It's really funny. It's 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 like the Ghostbusters one is interesting because of the statistical analysis. And if you don't care about that sort of thing, then it's not worth watching. I I've watched it dozens of times. I I think it's fascinating. Um, but the, uh, the, the, the most recent one, and I shared this in our chat and I said, cause this reminds me of Chris Bailey. Um, they talked about how star Wars on Lucasfilm on as owned by Disney has been a catastrophic failure. Um, kind of get one you know, good ahead with one. solo. Um, and so skipping forward to the punchline of the whole video, he was like, I have a solution to fix star Wars on film and scientist man's solution is that they have to be closed off theatrical events. That you have to pay and you have to pay a hundred dollars to get in which which by the way is a real thing that happened um when the force awakens came out and i remember because i went there was a theatrical experience that disney was putting on where now granted it wasn't just the movie you got to see the movie in, in kind of a, like a semi-private screening earlier than everybody else and then you got led into the park and the park was doing star wars stuff it was Hollywood Studios at the time. Yeah. So, so you know, well worth the hundred dollar ticket price. So he's had. So there's a seriousness and in, in a, in a believability to what he's saying, but it's also tongue in cheek because he's just saying, no, 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 it's just a hundred dollars to watch the film. But the the funny thing about that was how people will actually pay that money. Like we don't. We both know that if they had said, um, let's let's use Spider Man as an example. We're going to make a Spider-Man movie. We're going to create a theatrical event about it. It's going to it's going to unite all of the Spider-Man on films. Like they just let you know that ahead of time. You know, we're going to bring in Andrew Garfield, Tobey Maguire, Tom Holland, and it's going to be all the villains from all the other movies. It's just going to be big, big Spider-Man. It's going to be Avengers Endgame, but just the Spider-Man movies. For, and for the record, you know that's going to be every Marvel movie forever now. Is hey, how much shit can we cram in here to try and sell this? As look, it's all coming together as they yeah. desperately try to figure out something but, approaching narrative cohesion for their catastrophic bowl of spaghetti. Yeah, when when the next Doctor Strange movie is half an X Men movie. Um. Anyway, the point that I was getting to half was... X Men, one third Fantastic Four, and <laughs> and just for good measure. Uh, he, Benedict Cumberbatch, uh, Doctor Strange winds up in the Sherlock universe to act opposite <laughs> himself. No, he has to, but then, uh, but then Robert Downey Jr. has to come back as his version of Sherlock. Yes, the Sherlock verse. It's <laughs> right. gonna happen. Um. Anyway, to finish my sentence, if you had said we will give you the ultimate live action Spider Verse movie, but it's a hundred dollars a ticket, I I would guarantee you it it does at least eight tenths of the audience it did with you know just being a normal movie like yeah. people would have been people nutty people out there who love this sort of uh oh you know catnip for we the masses call, would no, have no, no, absolutely our, paid that money let's call them what they are fans sheep and i <laughs> and let me be clear i'm not saying sheep like you people don't think that's not what mm -hmm. i'm saying i'm saying sheep because you're lining up to be fleeced sure so anyway, um, so getting back to relating this back to Nightmare Alley, we're just not in a place right now, COVID or no, no COVID, where you there's, know, an audi there's an audience, for, there's a theatrical audience, rather, for a movie like Nightmare Alley. It just doesn't exist right now. Look, uh, let's put this in kind of harsh reality terms about how stupid our culture is at the moment. The Godfather, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Dog Day Afternoon, these films would have zero box office return if they were released now. No, no absolutely. That's how stupid um, we've become. That's the thing is like you wouldn't. I mean, do you even release The Godfather at this point? 
in a theater, maybe as a limited run, like they're doing with being the Ricardos, but it would have been, and it goes on no, Netflix. Yeah. It would have been the many saints of Newark. Yeah. So, all right. So just to get through this, um, we'll have a, we'll have a more in-depth money session tomorrow. Uh, but sticking with nightmare alley nightmare alley debuted at number five behind the following features okay so this is its first this is its debut it debuted on december 17th against spider-man which i don't know if you know this or not it won the weekend just by a small margin yeah you know <laughs> close race there yeah and kanto oh West Side man Story. hang on hang on hang on look we're gonna talk more about this tomorrow like you said mm-hmm but that 65% fall for West Side Story is awful. They didn't yeah, have a lot to begin with. Yeah, one and done, baby. One and done. Talk about... Um, you got to be... You got that. to hold the top spot the same way that, you know, certain boxers get interim international titles. <laughs> like, yeah, that means nothing. Yeah, and that's another Fox one that they inherited. That, that And look, any other year that probably does, you know, gangbusters. But no, again... no. I'm going to disagree you know, with you there. I, I don't see why you and Pat I, have this hard on, on for okay, like not doing another West Side Story. Okay. You want the answer? I'm, yeah, I'm happy sure. to answer the question. Okay. Let me be clear about what I'm about to say. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying it bombs this hard. Okay. That is not my argument. My argument is that even in a perfectly normal theatrical situation, mm -hmm. this does not do gangbusters because one it's there's no reason not to watch the original instead of this okay none and if you're gonna do a remake or an update or something like that for that kind of story you need a hook because otherwise no one cares all right let me ask you a question it's a, it's a straight up like yeah, okay, 10 words or less yes, okay no. hang on here's the other thing other thing mm -hmm. Live action musicals have been on the decline for a long time. Well, certainly this year is in, an indicator of that. My question to you is thusly, and it, it kind of you know ends the argument so that we can move on. Steven Spielberg presents. Nope. Does that have any inherent value anymore? In an ideal, again, in a normal circumstance, like okay, is this going to bomb this hard? No. It's not going to bomb this hard. It's going to find some kind of audience, at least for opening weekend. Mm -hmm. You know, it's uh, opening when it opened, even under normal circumstances, it would have won the weekend anyway. Like there mm -hmm. wasn't a whole lot else out there to kind of challenge it in that respect. No right. one's going to see Encanto for the third week. <laughs> I mean, people did, obviously, but you know what I mean? Like that's that's well, not a hard sell if you're so inclined. Uh, yeah, it um, it maintained the number two spot twice in a row, and it's dropped thirty five percent of its. It's theaters. not dropped all that much. It's had some yeah. pretty impressive holds week to week. So, look, Spielberg's uh, theater cachet at this point. Mm -hmm. That's what I was asking about. It's not what people think it is. He's right. had too many. Look, what's the last thing he did apart from West Side Story? Do you know off the top of your head? Spielberg. Not without looking it up, no. Uh, I'll look it up because I'm curious okay. now. Well, while you do that, Ghostbusters fell from three to four, and then Nightmare Alley debuted at number five. Um, you know, it's so funny, and, and I don't want to talk too much about it, but like Spider Man, 260 million. Nightmare Alley, two million. <laughs> like, <laughs> this is 
so ridiculous. But even like okay. some of these other okay. ones, like Encanto, hang on, Encanto, uh, six million for the weekend. West Side Story, three million for the weekend. Ghostbusters, three million. Nightmare Alley debuts with less than three million. Okay, here's Steven Spielberg recently. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm not even gonna. Uh, 2015 Bridge of Spies, which was all right. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, well, another movie kind of like West Side Story. It's not going to be a big smash hit, but you know, people will be interested. Follows that up with the BFG. And we've talked about that and how badly it bombed. Follows that up with The Post, which was a prestige attempt that didn't win any awards, or almost any. Followed that with Ready Player One in 2018. Right, okay. So, look, Spielberg has created some of the best movies ever. And I very much enjoy when he is on his game. But let's not pretend that at this point in time, he's got the same kind of pull as a as an attraction based uh, based on being the director that he did. What did he do ten years ago? It's about to 2011. Even 2011, he had the Adventures of Tintin and Warhorse. Okay, you know I mean, his. It's a fair argument to say that like his name just doesn't carry. No, it it, it just doesn't at this point, and I'm. He's still a, like I said, he's still a good director. I'm still interested in some of the stuff that he does, mm-hmm. but he's not he's not gold or he's not magic by virtue of Spielberg anymore. That's that's just not the case. All right. Um, if you're interested in the worldwide um, where where it is right now, tune into our Spider-Man review tomorrow. We'll d- discuss it at length. Uh, in the meantime, let's go ahead and do. The one thing we can talk about at this point, the critical Are you ready? No! I said, are you ready? No, God! No, God, please, no! 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 The Critical Review is brought to you by Grammarly. Grammarly's AI products help people communicate more effectively. Grammarly uh, helps you write mistake-free on Gmail, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and nearly anywhere else you write on the web. Grammarly corrects hundreds of grammar, punctuation, spelling mistakes, while also catching contextual errors, improving your vocabulary, and suggesting style improvements. To download Grammarly today, go to getgrammarly.com slash network. Again, that's getgrammarly.com slash network. To download Grammarly for free. All righty. Nothing, be- nothing beats free. All right. So um, the critics gave it an 80. They liked it slightly better than the audience. They didn't hate it, but they didn't love it. I think the audience did a lot of what like you did and my brother. I saw this with one of my brothers, and he had kind of the same reaction you did. I expected more you know, imagery-based horror and kind of things like that. So I think, I think there was a bit of disconnect between what people expected and what they got. And I think they reacted poorly to that. I, I think this, you know what I think failed this movie? I think the marketing failed it. Cause I think if Didn't you help, if you pitch it as a gritty noir and a psychological thriller, I think you, you know, maybe you, you get some people that are into that sort of thing. Um, if you, you know, again, if you, put it out there as something of a horror movie and then you get this i can see like there were people they weren't that i i saw a i think it was a 950 showing 
on, on a Sunday night. So it was not exactly a full theater. But those people that were there, I think, like, left halfway through. Like, I think I might have been the only one left in the theater by the time it was over. Um, while it may not hit quite as hard as the original, Del Toro's Nightmare Alley is a modern noir thriller with a pleasantly pulpy spin. I've... I'm very curious why people thought the original movie hit harder than this one. The original has a much more uplifting ending, believe it or not. He becomes a carnival geek, but Molly, he winds up in the same carnival as Molly and she kind of gives him hope for the future and talks him out of it. Like they, they really, and bear in mind, you know, we're talking the 1940s in film. There were some written and unwritten rules about what you could do as far as that goes. So Davidson's of the Atlantic top critic. Because Del Toro isn't working under the same 1940s cultural censorship, his adaptation is more lurid and violent than Edmund Golding's earlier version, and it delves into the darkness of Gresham's novel. Why is the movie such a slog, Ben? Uh, you, sir, have no patience. <laughs> <laughs> Look, and to be clear, we both said this is a bit overlong, but I think calling it a slog might be a bit unfair to it. It's... There's a difference between acknowledging a movie is overlong and saying a movie is uninteresting or boring. And that's kind of what slog implies. This was not so much a slog. It was just, like I said, there's periods where you wonder, you know, maybe we should trade and shave here or there. But I, I did not consider this a slog of a film. Sarah Maas of Laney, uh, Laney Gossip. Nightmare Alley is an unusually bleak tale from Guillermo del Toro. <laughs> Lady... You are not that familiar with Del Toro's work, then. That's all I'm getting. Like he does. This is bleaker than most Del Toro movies. I'll, I'll give you that. I think she would have been happy watching Hellboy three. But there's a very real argument that the ending of Pan's Labyrinth is bleaker than this. Just throwing it out there. I would say so. Bill Waters of Nerd. Because, look, hang on. You might yell at me about being, you know, a cynical robot. Mm-hmm. You're the one without magic in your soul if you don't see the uplifting argument about the ending of Pan's Labyrinth. I'm just saying it. Beautifully shot and some good performances, but it's a paint-by-numbers affair with little suspense or surprise, all the while aspiring to be a classic more outing. I don't think he's wrong in the sense that I, I, I disagree with the overall rating, but his logic in getting there at least makes sense. Alan Zilberman of Washington City Paper. Guillermo del Toro's latest goes for vicious, but struggles from too much ambition and not enough trust. That is a needlessly, uh, <laughs> not even pedantic. Like that's that's. What do you Up mean not enough? Ass. What do you mean not enough trust? Like your review should not be that pretentious. Uh, Robert Dennerstein of Dennerstein Unleashed. Ooh, he's, un he's unleashed. He, he, he used to work for Collider or something, I guess. <laughs> Nightmare Alley limps its way through a story that needed to move more quickly, vanquishing the opportunity for second thoughts or over-evaluation. Part of the reason it's slow is that you is that so you can marinate on those particular questions, buddy. Uh, again, I don't think he's wrong when he says it needed to move quicker. I think he's wrong about why that negatively affected the viewing experience here. Uh, Michael Compton of Bowling Green Daily News, that vaunted periodical. The cast can't save a film that promises something more in the first half, only to build to a rather weak payoff. The result is a film that has all the ingredients in place to deliver, but never finds the right combination to make it all work. This is not a person who's capable of understanding subtext. Clearly not. Excuse me. Um... 
Tapro Circus. Um, let's see here. Ah, Allison Wilmore of New York Magazine, Vulture, top critic. New York Magazine. Mm-hmm. It doesn't soft pedal its material so much as it suffocates it with meticulousness of its choices, with every aspect of its squalor noticeably art directed. Why do you think that's a bad thing? <laughs> Why do you think attention to detail and again deliberate production design like that is such a negative that you weird person? Kent Turner of filmforward.com. Del Toro's film becomes bloated early on with way too much exposition. Haven't we learned anything from Peter Jackson's three hour plus King Kong? Hold exposition? What, what exposition? The... Bradley Cooper doesn't even speak for the first five minutes. <laughs> Yeah, like, like n there's going talking with a carny magician and mentalist about his system and his tricks is not exposition. That's key to the character trying to strike out on his own. Like it's not there just to be there. Uh, Peter Travers of ABC News, top critic. The carny scenes of freaks and geeks are undeniably creepy, but Guillermo del Toro's hallucinatory brilliance only comes in flashes as Bradley Cooper. And a dynamite cast struggled to build a mesmerizing misfire into a classic it might have been. Eh, I don't <laughs> agree with that. I just want to read this because, like, this is the equivalent of Tina Fey uh, doing an impression of Sarah Palin yelling and rush, and I can see Russia from my house. Uh, Sunny Bunch of the Bulwark, Del Toro's best movie since Pan's Labyrinth. Okay. No, but okay. <laughs> uh, Why that in? Hold on, hold on. Go back up to that for just a second. Yes, sir. Why is that in quotes? <laughs> <laughs> Who are you quoting, you pulmetic pedantic jerk? Like, why is that in quotes? It's a good question. Robert's grandfather weighing in from the Wall Street Journal, old man Morgenstern, Joe Morgenstern, top critic. Nightmare Alley in its entirety, a beautifully visualized period piece that holds our attention and evokes plenty of horror, to be sure, but never brings us under the tent of wholehearted involvement. This time, the beauty is screened deep. <sighs> um, by the way, that's something I wanted to mention before. The audience, If you were somebody who really liked Carnival on HBO, you'll probably like this movie. Um, okay, old man Morgenstern, I get that you were upset that you weren't a consultant on this film since you were a a hale and hearty man in your 30s during the 1940s um but... alex, alex bentley of culture map nightmare alley is a noir that wants to pretend it's way more int intriguing than it actually is Guillermo del toro has never shied away from making his film stark but this time he forgot to make the story interesting yeah this is why spider-man's getting almost a near perfect rating on on this like not not a lot of patience in the professional uh, film criticism genre. Yeah, not, not genre for anything that isn't like catnip. Uh, I will say this as far as that particular bit of criticism goes. I think he's on to something that the in the writing process and a bit of the direction. I think they overestimated people being interested in elements of the plot. Mm -hmm. Or they expected the uh, sort of more character study aspects to carry through a weaker plot, and they find they kind of failed to walk that line appropriately. I think that's a fair point. But, buddy, 
if you're are like I'm probably not going to say anything good about Spider-Man. I'm just going to say it. Like I haven't seen the movie so I'm I might feel differently after seeing it, but you bunch of idiots with no patience and no understanding and no willingness to engage with a film. Yeah. But hey, look, things from 20 years ago that I can cheer about. Hooray! Toby well, Ma- old man I, Maguire's I'm here. I'm not going to criticize Spider-Man too much. Um, We'll talk about it tomorrow, and I have a lot of positive things to say about it. It definitely hit me emotionally in a couple of different places. That said, it is not a triumph of film. It, 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 it's not it, a triumph it, of anything other than expanding the vault that Scrooge McDuck fl- swims <laughs> you know what? It, you know what's a triumph? It's a triumph in studios trying to figure out the mathematical equation for a hit. It's a, it's a, it is a triumph of forestalling the inevitable collapse of your creatively bankrupt enterprise. All right, last one. Dom Sinicola, Pace Magazine. The whole film, the whole film begins to resemble a fetish object more than an adaptation in a bad way. I'm going to hope you're using fetish in the non-sexual sense. Oh, he has to be. Come on, let's get, let's be somewhat fair to that guy. No. I'm not going to be fair to him. I'm just. Gonna, I'm not going to give him the benefit of that doubt. I'm going to say I hope. I I think he's saying in a more in a more crit, critical, more mean spirited way what I was saying about sort of the the long lingering uh, shots that could have been this, cut. I, I I think, and again, I don't necessarily disagree with that. Mm-hmm. I think the assertion that Del Toro is more in love with this movie than. <laughs> You know, other like I, I'm not. I think that's an overreach, but mm-hmm. I might be wrong. Yeah, there's a conversation to be had about you as a studio. Yes, you have to make your you have to make your your catnip movies. You have to make your products, your Ghostbusters, your Marvels, your oh, DCs. That's, you have to, you have to sell tickets. You have contracts to fulfill. You have to make money. I'm not really arguing against any of that. Yeah. But but okay, so. So that's your first meeting of the day. What products are we going to put on the shelves? This comic book, this comic book, this thing from the eighties that you know that forty year old. No, 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 no. It's it's not even at this point. It's not even this comic book. Mm -hmm. It's this thing from the eighties. This thing from the nineties. This thing from the early two thousands. Because that's twenty years old now. Yeah. Well, the point that I was getting to was what um, can we rehash without actually expending creative effort or taking that big of a gamble? So, so you've had that meeting now. That meeting lasted 20 minutes because that's all the meeting you need. What you know, what things do we own IPs of that we can make products into and you know and how much money I we know. Can Let's do that? a Brady Bunch reboot. Your second meeting of the day is longer and takes more time to figure out what it is you're going to do. Because when an artist walks into your office and says, I want to, you know, I am this, I am this famous artist and I have had successes in the past doing both products and art. Uh, I want to make this thing. And you as a studio, once you've nailed down what your tent pole moneymakers are going to be, I, I think you then have to start to consider, well, what art pieces do we want to put out? What artists do we want to feature? And, you know, Guillermo del Toro is not not an unsafe bet i no. think nothing worked out the way that it should have with this movie yeah but like, th- i this mean movie like if, was... if the elevator pitch to me is we're gonna bring guillermo del toro to adapt this to adapt this noir novel um about the, down, about the downfall of man to his own excesses yeah i don't know if i say no to that you know i wouldn't but i'm also me <laughs> ronnie adams wants to know if you're feeling the christmas spirit the Christmas spirit? Absolutely. What does that have to do with... <laughs> we, we were mean to a film, therefore we are Grinches. You're oh, a mean one, uh, just, Mr. Just Grinch. Wait, 
just I... you wait for tomorrow. <laughs> You're a mean one, Mr. Grinch. You really hated Spider-Man. You I, pissed not... on all the Marvel films. You hate all of DC, Mr. Grinch. Okay, I don't piss on all the Marvel films. That's I would. I'm including myself in that. I mean, okay, you know, okay. he's picking at you, and I'm, you know, I've I've had my I took my shots tonight from way and, up in the bird's nest. Yeah, and look, in all seriousness, wait for tomorrow. We will talk <laughs> at spot. We will talk about Spider Man at length. I will say nice things, and I will say okay, a couple of negative things. Come at me, I, Chris Bailey. I, I'm gonna do the inverse. <laughs> I'm gonna say mostly negative things, but I'm sure I'll have one or two nice things to say. That's. <laughs> Look, if you think I'm operating in bad faith, that's a different discussion. I I, I don't can't op- wait for you to talk about the special effects in this thing, like some of the CGI. Why? You'll know when you see it. Please, All right. no, no. <laughs> why? Why would you, I, Mark? No. <laughs> why do you do that to me? <laughs> I I because I want you. You don't have a cell phone, but I I I want you in the middle of the movie to have a pigeon. And a uh, <laughs> you want you want a homing pigeon? Yeah, and it's just like when you see it, and and you're like, oh, and then you start furiously writing, you know, and you give the message to the pigeon, and then you say, find Rattledge, um, to let me know. Oh, that's what you were talking about. Okay, I will probably want to confer with you after seeing the film. If because frequent, this has happened on occasion when you've said, boy, that was bad. Mm-hmm. And I've, I I almost never disagree with you when you say you've seen bad CGI, because if it's bad enough to catch your eye, it's really bad. But there's a non-trivial number of times when we get on and I say, yeah, that sucked. But you want to know what really sucked? <laughs> this scene from like two minutes before that. Yeah, there is a couple of times Spider-Man goes nearly full Roger Rabbit. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's really, I mean... I'm sure most people didn't care or even notice, but I have to talk about these things with a critical point of view. And I, and especially having seen it twice now, I was like, Oh, wait a minute. Whoops. <laughs> that so, uh, that, okay. that might've needed a few more renderings. I need to ask you this since you've seen it twice. Yeah. One, I assume your second viewing was better because you, there were less drunk frat boys around you. Yeah. I could actually hear what one of the, ca- I don't want, I, I, one of the characters had to yeah, say you, you as and opposed I had to the con- entire audience cheering over it making the scene utterly pointless you and i had that conversation so i know who yeah. it is so we don't we don't have to spo- potentially spoil it i'll spoil it tomorrow though <laughs> there'll be so many spoils i am gonna tell you everything in gritty lurid detail <laughs> right down to how the punisher shoots spider-man in the head at the end of it i'm going i'm going to read from the script I'm- in my sex in my sexy uh Uh, my sexy voice so that it comes across like a smutty novel mark you and i came up with the perfect ending to this particular movie and i'm sad they didn't steal it from us (laughs) not a joke people like three weeks ago mark and i were just like you know how we would end how we should end this movie i would have i would have james bernthal's punisher snipe spider-man from like a mile away Mm. and i would end on the cliffhanger of is peter parker dead yeah all right. Um, for those and of you I, here, because I'm me, I would have him be dead. Well, you came here to hear us talk about Nightmare Alley, not Spider Man. So that yeah. is our review of Nightmare Alley, not Spider Man. Yeah. Last, uh, again, last thoughts. It's a it's a really good movie. You have to be in the right mood and frame and frame of mind to enjoy it. Yeah. In a like, month from now, when it's on PVOD, you should absolutely rent it. And depending on where it lands on streaming, yeah, this is absolutely worth your time. All Mark, right. here's the last thing I want to say before we get into spider get into spider-man tomorrow yeah i watched this movie then i came home and i watched season two of the witcher mm-hmm. and i just had it a, 
a nice couple of days when I could enjoy entertainment media that was not made for children. Mm-hmm. And now I have to see Spider-Man. And now you have to see Spider-Man, which is so made for children. I saw it with children Every... today. Okay, hold on. First of all, every Marvel movie is made for children. Everybody out there needs to accept that fact. That That's not me insulting you for liking them. Let me be clear. Well, I enjoy some Marvel movies. That doesn't mean they're not aimed at children first and foremost. So I saw it with children. I saw it with an almost 8-year-old, an almost an 11-year-old, and I think another 8-year-old. And the 7 and the 8-year-old's <laughs> reaction was Lollapalooza. They just thought this was How amazing. Was... I'm sorry, this is the question I meant to ask earlier. Mm-hmm. Having seen it twice, yeah. I assume your second viewing, while more pleasant in an overall experience, the film itself doesn't hold up, would be my guess. Like I'll when you, more, I'll talk more about this okay. tomorrow, but okay. to, just can, to very can, simply answer your question. We can save question. that for tomorrow. Well, to very simply answer your question, not that it didn't hold up, it's I didn't know how I was going to feel about it when I saw it the first time. And when it was over and none of the things I was afraid of happened, I was relieved knowing that, <laughs> knowing so you, that oh, going in, they didn't, they, they didn't pull down their pants and defecate on my face. Yeah. This, uh, they didn't steal the movie outright from Tom Holland. They, they didn't waste the other actors in the movie. Um, yeah, yeah. Shock of shocks. There's a lot of guest appearances by Pete, by actors and characters, you know, in this hodgepodge yeah. mesh mishmash uh, potato soup. So long story short, um, you know, they didn't steal the movie away from its lead. They didn't give the movie away to its guests. They found in one of the rare instances where Marvel hits the perfect pitch. Um, you know, I, I applaud them for restraint, <laughs> um, which is seldom in a Marvel movie. Very. Upon second viewing, not having that kind of tension and anxiety about it, I was more like, you know, get get to the third act already. Um, <laughs> like we were through the entire first two thirds of No Way well, when, Far From Home. Well, when you don't know, you know what's going to happen. You're like a- anybody could show up at any time, and in some cases did. And then, you know that that I don't want to talk about this right this second, but I'll I'll I'll, I'll say this, and then I'm really I'm shutting up yeah. and going going into plugs. And it, and it kind of goes to your your comment about people cheering at the screen. When your whole marketing campaign is that, um, what's his face who plays Dr. Octopus? What's his real name? Alfred Molina. Yeah. When Alfred Molina is all over your marketing, when to a lesser extent, Willem Dafoe is all over your marketing. You, we see Jamie Foxx. We get informations yeah. about Why are people cheering when they showed up on screen like it's a big shock? Oh, I like, hate like, that. The, I Let, let the, me just do the this big real action fast. Sequence on the, screen, on the big action sequence in the commercial is Dr. Octopus showing up and fighting Spider-Man on yeah. the bridge. And short and in the same bloody scene, Willem Dafoe shows up as the Green Goblin, and people in the theater who I don't know were having you know spontaneous amnesia were surprised when they both showed up. It seemed okay. like yeah, I'm like what I, are, oh my I, god, the Rolling Stones are playing Jumping Jack Flash. I would have never have thought that. But bam, second encore <laughs> when Hank when Hank Williams sings, sings Moon River. Look, there are some legitimately surprising cameos and appearances in Spider-Man that I don't like cheering, standing up and cheering at movies. Um, It's not a live performance. Uh, But I will at least accept that as sort of a cultural phenomenon. People are happy to see these people on screen and have no ability to compose themselves. Fine. I got it. Um, Y'all need to be hitting the head with a board. 
when you when you saw it when you're when you're, you see it in the trailer eight hundred times and you're yeah, still doing you, that. You people, and, and I, I'm going to direct this at a specific. <laughs> this from Go the guy who frequently and... says, "Get it off my lawn." <laughs> Go on Twitter and show your appreciation. Tag everyone. I'm sure they're happy about all those notifications. Don't ruin the viewing experience of everyone else around you. Yeah. Well, right. and hang on. Here's my gripe with people like this. Yeah. Like, like that. I don't. If something is genuinely surprising, mm-hmm. okay. I I don't begrudge people reacting to performance art, which is ostensibly what this is. Sure. If you're the type of idiot. And look at me. Yeah, I'm not saying it's not. I'm just saying. <laughs> Ronnie Adams with a with a hot take. Twitter is a vile dumpster fire. Yeah, no, boy, <laughs> well, a lot of pushback coming your way on that. <laughs> but that's where that's where that belongs. Okay, not in my theater. All right? Okay, you you listen. Look at me. Look at me. If you're the type of idiot, is important that watches a movie trailer 800 times to help climb the view count so you can keep fangasming over it. You don't get to do that in the movie. You've would, seen it. You know would, it's there. Stop I would like, it. I would, I would like to say at this time that the Batman trailer is dope as fuck. Let's move on. Uh, uh, I, I'm taking a shot at somebody. Leave me alone. Okay, okay. I, I, I thought you were being serious about the Batman trailer. Which Oh, God, no. <laughs> I, I did look. I'm going to say this about the Batman trailer. I finally saw it. Mm-hmm. There's one part that I think is unbearably stupid. Mm-hmm. That's Batman walking full force into full frontal machine gun fire. That's unbearably stupid. The rest of it, I'll wait and see. Like, there's nothing in. There was nothing else in there that actively turned me off. Robert Pattinson. <laughs> Robert Pattinson uh, gave my wife the vapors, and she's thinking about seeing it with me. I'm sure he did. Uh, <laughs> you, your wife, who, God love her, insisted on doing the long road to ruin on the Twilight franchise. <laughs> sure did, Ollie. All right, tomorrow uh, we begin our long march to Christmas. Uh, we're doing some re-airs. Our Harley Quinn holiday special, Tarja Spirits from Spirits and Ghosts. Uh, these are all Christmas things. Uh, the, our Warrior Christmas special, which is now infamous, by the way. <laughs> Where you guys delve into deep anatomical detail. (laughs) Yeah. That's me and Chris Sheehan having a lot of fun with that book. Uh, The Grinch 2018 review that we did. That is certainly a piece of something allegedly art. Uh, Myself and Sean Comer reviewing Jingle All the Way. And then myself and Jason Teasley reviewing Santa Jaws. Um, Some (laughs) new Christmas stuff we've got coming up. Myself and Evan Bevins. We'll be doing a couple of off-the-beaten-path Christmas movies. We're going to do Fat Man, The Ref with Dennis Leary, and and a movie I saw only for the first time today, In Bruges, which was interesting. Um, That's a pretty darn good movie, actually. That's one of the movies that shows you Colin Farrell can act. Yeah, for sure. Uh, myself and Jesse Starcher reviewed Brian Posehn's The Last Christmas comic, which is a lot of fun. Christmas Eve, um, we'll be airing our Christmas trivia show with Jason Teasley, his lovely wife, David Wright, and myself, hosted by Jesse and Alexis. And right now my kids are saying, and I don't want to make too many promises here, but my kids are saying we're going to do a triple feature on Mickey's Christmas Carol, Yogi's First Christmas, and Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas. You and your children discussing that series of Christmas specials. That, If that's not just warming the cockles of your cold, dead heart, nothing will. Thank you. 
<laughs> Who says we're not on the Christmas spirit? Speaking what, of which, you think, well, you thought I was going to say something negative about any of that? <laughs> like, you want to yes, talk? I, a- yes, I've seen your social media interactions with me. Um, <laughs> so, look, uh, no, I, I, I might take issue with some of those movies with some of those specials individually but that's Mm -hmm. i'm not gonna knock you and your kids doing a review of them like go have wholesome family fun we will uh we're gonna broadcast it for monetary purposes (laughs) yes (laughs) um glorious glorious clickbait hey uh, we're gonna re-air our heavy service right children watch children watch mickey's uh children watch mickey's christmas carol you won't believe their reaction (laughs) Heavy Saurus, right? Halista Jula. It's there. It, it, it's it's guys from uh, in a heavy metal band dressed up as dinosaurs playing Christmas music. It's fantastic. And then uh, sure, um, sounds, the, sure sounds awesome. And then on the twenty sixth, we'll be re-airing our review from a few years ago of the Hateful Eight. And in theory, uh, that evening we will be reviewing Ghost in the Shell, Aeon Flux, and Ex Machina. That'll be Jeff Sloboda of the Batman Trailers Dope as Fuck podcast. I'm sorry, of the MCU's Bleeding Edge. And David Wright. Um, and then, yes, finally, 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 Chris Bailey, Chris Bailey, Chris Bailey. We are, in fact, reviewing Spider-Man No Way Home. We will have Gavin Napier, who will uh, be joining us to review Spider-Man No Way Home. It'll be He is notoriously cranky. about. He's a lot like if Pat you, in that respect. If you think I'm harsh. <laughs> he, um, he, he's the one that he had to record his own reaction to our review of man of steel he hated it so much um he's another one who thought days of future past was terrible because it wasn't comic book accurate so i'm curious to see what he thought of spider-man uh all the spider things all right that's it that's all, all for me the, look i i if all spider- the spider things please don't <laughs> one blink 182 as soon as they achieved any degree of mainstream notoriety became absolute trash and they weren't that good beforehand. Uh, second, not throwing in, I'm not, not throwing, I'm not even talking about like uh, Peter Porker, spider ham, but if spider pig from the Simpsons movie doesn't make an appearance in Spider-Man, all the spider things, <laughs> I'm going to be disappointed. Uh, it can get weirder. Go do your plugs. So we can get out of here, please. All right. If you're interested in my take on combat sports, I host the 411 Ground and Pound MMA podcast, your weekly look into the wide, wacky, wonderful world of mixed martial arts and other combat sports related things. This week, I reviewed the final UFC card of the year where Derek Lewis took his used athletic cup out of his shorts and threw it at a fan (laughs) in the UFC apex. Did he say his balls was hot? No, he was asked why he did that. And he said, I want to make an NFT out of that. (laughs) I don't think he knows what those are. Uh, yeah. <laughs> then he said, yeah, I hate five round fights. So UFC, give me a three round title fight, please. He's my favorite fighter ever. He's got, look, he's a funny guy. Not, mm-hmm. pre- not I will never pretend. I, I understand the appeal of Derek Lewis, even if I don't like his fights. I understand why people do. So my full review of that event, which had positives, negatives, a really nice submission. Actually, there was an inverted triangle choke in the first round of the first fight. So give that a re uh, you can find my full review of that. I also talked a little bit about boxing, uh, Art or Better Beef, which I covered with Mark. Uh, and because I had to laugh, I absolutely had to laugh about Jake Paul flatlining Tyron Woodley. <laughs> 
have you seen and i don't want to get into a discussion about this but just yes or no have you seen the uh stuff online about how um he, he threw that fight yes okay mma fans are the are unbelievably stupid people <laughs> I, I look guys i can't say it any other way if you think that fight was fixed you're an idiot i don't have another way to say that at all i wish i did i wish i could give you the benefit of being someone who was hit in the head too often or <laughs> any other number of reasons that you're this divorced from reality but i can't because there isn't you're just a horribly horribly deluded unbearably stupid person and you're probably the kind of person who three years ago was saying get rid of tyron woodley he sucks now you're saying he's a good fighter he could have knocked out jake paul why'd he throw that and take terrible 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 head trauma and w professional death to get knocked out like that you're an idiot you're a hypocrite and just shame on you for being that brain dead. We were done with this review 20 minutes ago. I just want to go on record as saying hey, that. Hey, you brought up those idiots. I didn't even address them. I okay. just talked about the fight. <laughs> okay. So my review of that particular bit of hilarity, because that fight was awful. Like that fight sucked out loud until the knockout. And you covered that with uh, poor Dan Lasby. <laughs> We had fun, and people enjoyed I'm, listening to us. I'm sure you did. You were probably drinking, as most people <laughs> would have been after two rounds of that fight. No, I was really tired. If I had been drinking, I'd have passed out during the fight. I'm, I'm pretty sure Tyron Woodley took a shot of something between rounds at some <laughs> point. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to clinch more. That'll work. Yeah. So I reviewed that fight as well, because talking about Jake Paul generates traffic. And well, it's, it's a, he does, man. I, I am not happy about the fact that he does, but I am not going to pretend that I am not at least somewhat subject to market forces. I can, I can put Jake Paul knocks out Tyron Woodley in the title of my podcast, or I cannot. And you can see the numerical discrepancy in what happens. And you die a little inside. A little bit. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, you can listen to that. I have a full report for the last UFC event up in 411mania.com. I cover professional wrestling a few days a week when it's on. Uh, I My written report for AEW's Dark Elevation is already up. I did that before we started the show. So if you're interested in that, give that a read. That's in the MMA zone of 411mania. I cover MLW stuff when they release it. I think we're on a bit of a hiatus for them until January of next year. So we'll see if anything crazy happens between now and then. Uh, if they release something, I will review it. And I cover uh, WWE SmackDown on Fridays. Last week was a flaming dumpster fire <laughs> saved by one main event talking segment, which was legitimately great. rest of that show, they gave Madcap Moss and Baron Corbin messing around with a sword stuck in a desk a full segment. I'm not kidding. I wish I was. I wish a billion-dollar company with a talented roster could allocate their airtime better on an incredibly expensive deal for the Fox network than to have those two useless bags of crap parade around on my screen with Madcap telling jokes that would not be accepted to be inside of a Laffy Taffy wrapper. I wanted to die a little bit. 
that show was <laughs> thank god for roman reigns man <laughs> just okay he makes smackdown watchable and when he's not there it's well okay look brock and overalls right brock lesnar and overalls is kind of fun okay all right so you can listen to that i will be again i will be reviewing smackdown on friday so yeah christmas eve nowhere i'd rather be than watching that grease <laughs> fire so hey, i will if, do that if, if, if everyone goes to bed early and nobody wants to, to play with me i'm gonna play with robert Arr. uh there's a fox fight on <laughs> there, there's a pvc fight on fox christmas day that i'm gonna drag robert into if i have nothing better to do no look not only do you not ha- have to have nothing better to do i have to have nothing better to do oh let's let's not there's a non-trivial chance I'll just be down at my grandmother's. She has Fox. Yeah, but I don't have a phone. <laughs> oh, God damn it. Okay. All right, folks. That's our review. That's all You're of our I'm not watching fun. boxing at my grandmother's on Christmas Day. <laughs> She's over 80. This might be our last one with her. I'm not taking time away from that. But her on the podcast. A- you don't want to talk to my grandmother about boxing. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But Robert Winfrey, I'm Mark Radlitz. Thanks for joining us on Damn You Hollywood. If we come back tomorrow where we have so much more to discuss. But Ronnie Adams hanging out with us on Twitter. Thanks, Ronnie. You, Ronnie. Thank you, Ronnie. Uh, and hey, if you're listening to this after, you're like, hello, why, why did they? Why were they talking to a voice that we couldn't hear? Because we interact with the people who follow us on the live stream. So whether it's Twitch, YouTube, or Facebook, if you leave comments, we will put them on screen and we will talk to you. You can be a part of the show. So if you um, want, if you wish to ask us bizarre questions or yell at us, just anything other than a long string of profanity, we will happily put your comment up and, and interact no, depending with on how funny this the long string of profanity is okay yeah mark has mark has jurisdiction over that i would not put up a long string of profanity he might <laughs> all right thank you for joining us be well be safe and behave